And we are in Romans chapter 8. So if you would take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 8, join me there. It is summer, given all of the traveling, the two-week break that we've had from the book of Romans, which is always good to get a little break when you're in a long series. And Romans is a pretty long one. It's going to be a lot of sermons in Romans because it is so theologically rich. So it's good for us to take a break, but because we've had a couple of weeks here, I want to take just a couple of minutes to remind you of the big picture of the letter. The letter's theme, its big truth, if you will, is stated in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, "'For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And everything that follows then for 16 chapters is proclaiming and explaining the power of this gospel. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, then, through the end of chapter 4, the Apostle Paul lays out the core or the heart of the gospel, which is justification by faith, that we are made right with God when we believe, when we trust him and his promises to forgive us, and that he has provided forgiveness for our sins in the sacrifice of Christ. A summary of this entire section really is found in chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, made known apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believed. For there is no distinction, all have sinned, And fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a someone who would absorb or take God's wrath by His blood to be received by faith. So in chapters five through eight, then Paul provides for us as God's people unshakable confidence for the future. These chapters are the promise of the gospel, the assurance of glory, that if you are justified, if you are brought into a right relationship with God, God will in the end deliver you from his wrath and give you glory, glorify you, transform you. At the beginning of chapter 5, we learn how being justified establishes peace with God, gives us access to grace. It guarantees our future deliverance from his judgment. Then we see that this is because we are now found in Jesus Christ, not in Adam. Through Christ, life has come where before death reigned. In chapters 6 and 7, Paul answers the question, well, if this is true, what what is our position towards sin? 
What is our relationship with sin and death and the law? And we find that we are united with Christ in death and in resurrection, and we are set free from the bondage of sin and death, and now we belong to righteousness. Also, we are set free from the law and its consequences of living under that system. We now live under grace. And now in chapter 8, Paul proclaims these great assurances to those who have been justified, to those who have peace with God, to those who stand in grace, not moving in and out of grace, but stand now in grace, those who are set free from sin and death. And at the beginning of chapter 8, he declares, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No matter how badly we have rebelled, no matter how far we have strayed, no matter how violently we have violated God's righteousness and his decrees, there is now no condemnation because we are in Christ. Because the spirit of life dwells in us, we are set free from the law and the power of sin. He explains that we are adopted through the work of the Spirit, and we are given all of the privileges of sonship. And here in chapter 8, verses 18 through verse 30, he sets forth the certainty of glory, the hope of glory, this hope that we have and that the sufferings of this present time, Paul says, are not worth comparing with this glory that is to be revealed to us. And I attempted to illustrate this by, by saying that it's one thing to try to dip all of the water out of a bathtub with a measuring cup. If I were to do that, you would say that takes a while, but if I were to try to do that with the Pacific Ocean, it would be insane. You could never empty the Pacific Ocean with a measuring cup. But that is what Paul says comparing the sufferings of this life, water in a bathtub, to the glory that is to come, the waters of the Pacific Ocean, that they're beyond compare. And so today we continue in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Father, how great, how good. How perfect you are, and how blessed we are to be your people, to know your love. Lord, forgive us for doubting you. Forgive us for ever thinking that you are unfaithful or untrue. Forgive us for failing to live in the power that you provide for us, to pursue you, to follow you. Lord, we know that you were patient with us and that you would never abandon us. Lord, give us understanding now as we give our attention to your word. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, we started to identify four facets or four aspects of hope, the hope of glory that we see in these verses. And we saw first hope's longing, hope's Longing. This is verses 19 through 22. All of creation groans under the curse. All of creation longs for the sons of God to be revealed, to be glorified. Because when we are, creation too will be delivered. Creation came under the curse because of Adam and Eve's sin and rebellion. All of creation. And so it groans. It has never reached its true purpose as God originally designed and intended because of sin. And we as God's children also groan with the anticipation of being finally saved, being finally delivered, not only from the the power of sin and death, but ultimately from its presence. That's what being glorified is. So we so hope's longing that to have the hope of glory is to long for glory. It's to know in one sense, in a very real way, we don't belong. There's something greater. There's something better coming. Secondly, we saw hope's fortitude, verses 23 through 25. Like creation, we too groan under the weight of weakness and waiting, waiting for our promised deliverance, waiting for that transformation in glory. But instead of breaking us down, we bear the burden with patience or fortitude, endurance. The assurance that we have from God's promise that he will deliver us, that he will bring us to glory, gives us fortitude. Today we continue with the third aspect, 
hope's help. Hope's help. Verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Verse 25, as we saw, tells us that we're waiting eagerly here for our final adoption as sons. The final redemption of our bodies, this waiting develops patience, fortitude, the ability to bear up. And the greater that burden becomes, the stronger we get. It's counterintuitive. As opposed to breaking us down, it actually forces us into greater endurance. But in addition to this, the Holy Spirit helps us. Now, the word helps is a word that means join with to bear a burden or to assist. As we endure this waiting with fortitude, the Holy Spirit comes to our aid to sustain us, to fortify us, to bear the burden with us, to accomplish through us what we could not do on our own. I'm reminded of a scene in Disney's animated feature, Mulan. Remember Mulan? There's a scene where she and the emperor's army face the invading Huns, and she ends up blowing a cannon into the side and causing an avalanche and wipes out their army. But in the midst of that, she goes over the edge of a cliff on her horse, but her compadres, her fellow soldiers, grab the rope and hold her there. An entire horse, yes, animated Disney. A horse and a rider and the little dragon character. Anyway, but they can't pull her up. Then comes the gentle giant, Poe. I don't know if you remember him. He's the big soldier, the big guy, soft-spoken, but he wraps his arms around the whole group and he takes steps back and he pulls them and the rope and the horse and Mulan up over the cliff. It's a great picture of what this word help is. We, like children, are hanging on to this rope. We're trying to sustain this burden. And the Holy Spirit comes around us and joins with us and says, I've got you and I've got the burden. He sustains us. He helps us. For us, our burden, here according to verse 26, is our weakness. Our weakness. Now, Paul isn't talking about times of weakness. We all have certain times where we are beat down spiritually, emotionally, physically. Certain circumstances in life, loss, tragedies. But Paul isn't talking about specific circumstances or times, and he's not talking about specific conditions of weakness. Maybe an illness or when we're facing a a hardship. He's talking about being human. He's saying that by the fact that we are creatures, we are in a state of weakness, a state of insufficiency. We are vulnerable. We are frail. We are insufficient in knowledge and understanding. We are subject to temptation and failure. Until our adoption is complete, until our redemption is complete, we live in a state of weakness. And though hope fortifies us 
to wait for God's promises to be fulfilled, we are insufficient to sustain it in and of ourselves. And so the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life, who sets us free from the law of sin and death, the Spirit of life, whom we are in, Paul says, we are in the Spirit, and also who dwells within us, who makes us Christ's, who makes us one with Christ, whose presence in us guarantees our resurrection from the dead and our eternal life, he also helps us. He joins us to bear the burden of our weakness. How does he do this? How does he help us? How does he come to our aid? The answer, intercession. So Paul says here, he intercedes for us. First, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And secondly, the Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. In our weakness, in our state of weakness, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. By which Paul means that when we pray... We often pray without understanding, without perceiving the will or the purposes of God. And we're well aware of that, aren't we? In our weakness, we might pray for the wrong thing. We may not have the words to actually express what's going on in our hearts. We may not know how to intercede for someone else because we can't know the heart of somebody as God does, we might pray without taking into account certain commands of God or certain promises of God. We might fail to pray as urgently as we ought to. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Creation groans. We, the sons of God, groan. And the Holy Spirit groans. Meaning that the Spirit passionately articulates prayers for us that are beyond our capacity to perceive or comprehend. That's what Paul is picturing. That the Spirit within us groans in a realm and in a way that's beyond our perception. And prays in a way and with a perfection that we could never pray. Like I said, we know this. That's why we always, we say, we're always praying, Lord, would you do this if it be your will? We're submitting ourselves to God's will, which might be different than what we're praying. The Holy Spirit never prays anything outside of God's will, though. He prays for us with groanings too deep for words, and his groanings always intercede for us according to the will of God. In our weakness, we do not know the will of God perfectly. But the Spirit takes our prayers, and he almost reprays them or rephrases them before God. He groans, he intercedes for us perfectly to match God's will and purposes. Now, what makes this possible, Paul explains here, is the oneness of the Father and the Spirit. 
There is a harmony between the one who searches hearts. And this phrase is talking about God's divine omniscience, that he knows everything about you. Your motives, your thinking, your attitudes, how you view the world are all laid bare before God. Nothing is hidden from him. He sees and knows all. He is the one who searches hearts. And it also has this idea of testing the heart, searching it and seeing what is in somebody's heart. David praised this at the end of Psalm 139. Search my heart. Right? Search my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. That is to test it. See what's really there. Because you and I really don't even know what's in our hearts sometimes, do we? We don't even know what's there. God knows our hearts and our thinkings and our attitudes better than we do. He knows them perfectly. We can be self-deceived. We can hide things in the corners of our hearts and never even know they're there until God exposes them. So there is this perfect harmony between he who searches hearts and the mind of the Spirit. God the Spirit understands the will of God in a way we never can. And God the Father knows both what is in our hearts and the mind of God the Spirit in a way we never can. Again, God's grace to us is provided in His own intercession for us as the Spirit intercedes and groans with words too deep for us to ever know or understand. As a Christian, this assurance belongs to you. It's implied here that in this age, we will be crying out to God as we groan, as we wait for glory, as we wait for salvation. In our weakness, we will be crying out to God for help, for guidance, for strength. And this Verse tells us that no matter how feeble your prayers are or feel, no matter if you pray the wrong thing at times, no matter if your prayers aren't answered the way that you want, or even if you feel like they're not answered at all, even if you don't know which way to go or how to feel, the Spirit who lives in you is interceding for you perfectly and sufficiently. And you know what this means? It means you will make it. You will make it to glory. You will make it through this age of weakness and frailty and temptation to an eternity of glory. Because the Holy Spirit helps us. He sustains us. In this age, as we wait, as we yearn for our final redemption, as we yearn for the, the presence of God in eternal glory, that's your assurance. The fourth and final aspect, then, of 
this hope of glory is hope security. Hope security. Find this in verses 28 through 30. And you see, all of these truths, the spirit of life dwelling within us, setting us free from the law of sin and death, the, the privileges of sonship, these all ensure our security. But verses 28 through 30 provide one of the clearest explanations of how you cannot be lost once you belong to Jesus Christ. How you cannot fail once you belong to Jesus Christ. How you cannot be cast aside once you belong to Jesus Christ. It is one of the greatest declarations of your security as a believer found anywhere in the Bible. It is also one of the clearest statements about the sovereign providence of God in saving us. Now, I often say, and so I will remind you here, that sometimes the apostles write in the New Testament from a street-level perspective. They write truth from the perspective of how we experience life. What is seeable, visible, measurable. At other times, they write from what I call the behind-the-curtain perspective. They write revealing what God the Spirit has revealed to them to write, Truths that we could never observe or know because they are hidden from us. They reveal God's hidden thoughts and purposes. Things that God is doing behind the curtain. And we see this all over the Bible. Romans as a whole, the whole letter, is very much a behind-the-curtain letter. These verses are some of the most behind-the-curtain verses in all of Romans and even the Bible. As Paul kind of pulls the curtain back and shows us what God is doing behind that curtain. Verse 28 is especially familiar to many of us. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who who are called according to his purpose. For some, this verse becomes cliche. Something like, oh, yeah, it'll all work out together for good. Maybe that you've heard that. Maybe that you've said that in that way. Sometimes this verse is used without a lot of thought and care. Even if it's with good motives, it is sometimes administered like theological morphine to the wounded. As if responding to someone's grief or their hardship with, well, oh, this is really hard. it'll all work out together for good in the end, somehow will ease their suffering. Now, the reality is that this truth needs to be spoken to those who are hurting. It should be spoken to Christians who are hurting, who are facing great tragedy. It's just that there's a right way and a right time 
to speak this promise to someone who's hurting. But it does need to be spoken to. We do need to cling to this promise. Sometimes this is the only solid ground beneath your feet. This is a promise to cling to in the midst of heartache, even unexplainable tragedy. To know that even when we are facing overwhelming trials, when we are broken by hardship, we have the certain promise that God is accomplishing our good. That is an unmatched comfort. If we believe in, if we trust in, But it's more than just a comfort for the hurting. What about when we struggle with temptation? What about when we fall into sin again? The same sin again. What about when we're racked with guilt and doubt? I'm just too far. I can't overcome this. There is no way God is going to continue to, to love me. There are some teachings that even claim to be Christian that would say you can lose your salvation, that you are not secure, you're never secure in your salvation or your relationship with God, that you're only secure as long as you are checking off all the right boxes, if you're behaving correctly, but if you sin, if you fail... You have to be saved again. Are God's plans to save us jeopardized? Even if we're blinded by pain, even if we are, we are wrestling with a sin that we hate, are God's plans to save us jeopardized? Ah, here is solid ground for when we despair over that nagging sin or those whisperings in our heart that God will cast us aside. For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And when the Bible says all things, it means all circumstances, all situations, especially it means all sufferings, including suffering of doubt, all the things we would consider bad, all of the things we would consider destructive to life, all of these things work together. And for all things to work together doesn't mean that the circumstances themselves are working together, they're working themselves out for good, but that the sovereign hand of God is working all things together for good. Though invisible to us, imperceptible to us, God is coordinating, God is orchestrating all the circumstances of your life into a meaningful whole. He is bringing them all together to a meaningful whole, your good, your welfare, your benefit, your joy. Ultimately, this good is glory. It's glory. 
It's not immediate relief from suffering. In fact, when we try to calculate the good, we can cling to this promise of, I know, Lord, you're working all of this out for my good. And then we try to, we often try to calculate with a formula what that good is. Well, this happened, so this happened, so this happened. That was a good thing that came out of it. Listen, there are some tragedies in life that you never can calculate what the good is that came out of it. Because God's perspective and eternal perspective is ultimately the good that God is working out is your glorification. God is coordinating all of these things. But also, God is coordinating all things to work toward your fortitude now, your joy now, the, the perfecting of your faith now. That is all part of the process that is moving toward glory. So God is working all things together for your good, every tear. Every dark night of the soul, every unexpected change, even your every failure, your bad decisions, your stumbling, yes, even that is not beyond the sovereign God who works all things together for good. They are all coordinated for your spiritual progress and future glory. This promise, though, only applies to, one, those who love God, and two, those who are called according to his purpose. Now understand, this is who a Christian is. Loving God is not something you have to achieve to qualify for God's Sovereign purposes to be worked out in your life. To say those who love God is the same as what Paul says back up in chapter 8, verse 5, those who live according to the Spirit. And you'll remember, I made the point, that you may look at your life and you say, I don't really think I'm living according to the Spirit. But Paul is not talking about sinless perfection. Paul is talking about the state of, that you are in, you are living according to the Spirit if you have the Spirit of Christ. And if you have the Spirit of Christ, you belong to Christ. That's what he says. You are being changed. And this, those who love God, you may have the same reaction. You may not always feel that you faithfully love God. Just as you may not always feel like you are living according to the Spirit. But if you are a Christian, justified, made right with God, made one with Christ, then you are one who loves God. Because part of being converted, part of becoming a Christian is having your heart transformed in such a way that you now love God, something you could never do before you were a Christian. So to be a Christian is to be one who loves God. In fact, it is as much your identity as being called according to his purpose. And that's not something you achieve either. 
Because God's calling is his sovereign work of bringing you to himself. To be called by God is not an invitation. It is a summons. When it says that God called you, it means that God summoned you to himself. Now, from a street-level perspective, you may not have experienced conversion. You may not have experienced becoming a Christian, understanding that you were being called. You heard the gospel. You were convicted of sin. You knew, you understood that you needed forgiveness, that you stood under God's judgment and in need of being cleansed, forgiven, and restored to him. And you believed in Jesus and the gospel's promise of forgiveness. But according to Romans 8.28 and what follows here in verses 29 and 30, you were being summoned, you were being called by God to believe and receive his grace. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. And C.S. Lewis portrays this truth so well in the second chapter of The Silver Chair, book four. Well, in the original ordering of the books, it was book four. They should have stayed the same, but that's a different different sermon. Eustace Scrub and Jill Pohl are being chased by a gang of bullies at school when Eustace suggests that he and Jill together ask Aslan to deliver them and bring them to Narnia. He doesn't know if that will happen or not, but he says we should ask. And, they, and so they do. And then without meaning to, they enter one of those magical doors into Narnia. Very soon afterward, after a few events, Jill, who has never been in Narnia before, is confronted by Aslan, who Aslan, of course, is the great lion, the Christ figure in the stories. And Lewis portrays it this way. Come here, said the lion. And she had to. Human child, said the lion, Where is the boy? He fell over the cliff, said Jill, and added, Sir. How did he come to do that, human child? He was trying to stop me from falling, sir. Why were you so near the edge, human child? Finally, she comes clean. I was showing off, sir. That is a very good answer, human child. Do so no more. And now the boy is safe. I have blown him to Narnia. But your task will be the harder because of what you have done. Please, what task, sir, said Jill. The task for which I called you and him here out of your own world. This puzzled Jill very much. Speak your thought, human child, said the lion. I was wondering, I mean, could there be some mistake? Because nobody called me and scrub, you know. Now listen to her explanation. It was we who asked to come here. 
Scrubs said we were to call to, to somebody, it was a name I wouldn't know, and perhaps the somebody would let us in. And we did, and then we found the door open. Jill is simply recounting from a street-level perspective what she experienced. But Aslan responds with this. You would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you, said the lion. Then you are somebody, sir, said Jill. I am, and now hear your task. You would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you. This is Lewis's way of demonstrating what is going on behind the curtain. This scene captures how God is really calling us to himself. It is those who love God and are called according to his purpose who have this promise that God is working all things together for good. Now, in verses 29 and 30, Paul reveals what God's will is. What is this purpose that's being worked out? The purpose that the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf to accomplish. Paul uses four phrases here, then, which link together five terms that form an unbreakable chain of security for the Christian. The first phrase is this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This first word, foreknew, is probably the most debated of all of these terms. Some take it to mean God knew beforehand. In other words, God saw into the future. He looked down the tunnel of time. He saw that you will believe in the gospel, that you would choose him, that you would repent, turn from sin. And then he determined to save you. From that point, then God predestines you and calls you and so on. Now, there are a few problems with understanding the word this way. And definition-wise... The word can be used that way to foreknow a circumstance or an event or something. But the problem is this essentially means that it is your choice or my choice that determines God's saving of us. Is this not a means of meriting salvation? That God doesn't really sovereignly elect or save people apart from their sinful states, but only according to how they have responded in the future to the offer of the gospel. There's also the problem that this requires us to say that God learns information he didn't have before. How can God be omniscient if he discovers somehow that in the future you will respond with faith? Does God learn information? 
There is a whole teaching called the openness of God. That said, God is always learning. He's always gaining information. That he's changing. There is also the problem that the text does not say God foreknew something about you, an act or a decision you would make or that I would make, but that he foreknew you. He foreknew you, a person, those he foreknew. To know a person is to be talking about relationship. So for God to foreknow you means that God pre-established a relationship with you before you believed, before you ever heard the gospel, before you existed. God foreknew you. I would even say there is the question that when we talk about the knowledge of God or God knowing something, is it possible for God to know something without determining it? But in any case, that's, a, that's probably its own book. Okay. For God to foreknow you means that God pre-established a relationship with you. And having already formed a relationship with you, he then predestined you. He determined that you would be conformed to the image of his son. This is the end goal of the transforming work that God is doing in us. That we will be conformed to the image of Christ. This is our glorification. We will be like Christ. That is how he will be the firstborn. By firstborn here, he's talking about preeminence. He will be the preeminent one among many brothers who have been made in his likeness. Your destiny, your purpose for existence is to be like Christ. That's it. God will conform you to the image of his son. So this... Those he foreknew, he predestined for this glory to be conformed to the image of Christ. Secondly, those whom he predestined, he also called. See how he chains these links together. Foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Now God's call is placed into these other divine works. God foreknew, he predestined, he called. So this call is when God calls us to himself. It is when God's work of saving you actually breaks into time. So his, his foreknowing, his predestining, take place outside of time before time ever begins. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he chose us before the foundations of the world. It's another behind-the-curtains scene, truth. So that happened outside of time. Now, in time, as time is unfolding, God breaks into time and calls you to himself. He awakens your heart. He convicts you of sin. He summons you, child, come to me. Come here. Third, and those whom he called, he also justified. Now, this is a familiar term for us. In the book of Romans, 
To be justified means to be made right with God. And we've talked about how this word is, is a courtroom scene. It is a legal term. It means that all of our sins, all of our offensive offenses, our infractions are cleansed. The slate is wiped clean. We are made right with the judge. Now this term justification is placed as a link in this chain. We now see that faith, being justified before God, happens because we are actually called. And we are called because we are predestined. And we are predestined because we are foreknown. And fourthly, those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this is the end of the chain. This is the link. This is the anchor, if you will. An unbreakable chain. There are a couple interesting things about how Paul puts this. Number one, he seems to skip sanctification in the list, doesn't he? I mean, we would kind of expect Paul to say something like, those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he sanctified. Those he sanctified, he glorified. And Paul just goes from justified to glorified. Because he's tying together your conversion when you are made right with God to ultimate salvation or deliverance. And glorification, being glorified, is the culmination of all of that process of of being changed and transformed, being conformed to the image of Christ. So being glorified is just the whole thing. Secondly, you will notice glorified is explained here as something that's done, accomplished. It's seen as completed action. Those he justified, he also glorified. So it's, it's almost as though Paul is saying the fact that you're justified also means you're glorified, which is his point. Even though we experience it as something in the future, again, street-level perspective, right? This is something that hasn't happened yet. This is the not yet. As far as God is concerned, it is good as done. From God's perspective, nothing can prevent or disrupt his purposes. God cannot lose. You cannot be lost. And the whole Bible reveals this to be the case. Just read the book of Genesis. The whole point of the book is God's promises can never fail. No matter how bad Abraham is, no matter how bad Judah sins, no matter how Joseph is this, whatever it is, whatever takes place, God's promise marches forth. His covenant can't be changed. God will do what he will do. He's going to do that in your life as well. What you and I experience as future, think about this. God isn't confined to time. What is future to us is not future to God. It's present to him. Or past. It's both present and past. Because there is no present, past, or future to God. He is present at all times in every way. It has already taken place. I even believe when John is caught up into the heavens in Revelation chapter 1, John is not actually being shown what will happen. He is actually transported to seeing it happen. Because for God, it's already happened. Now, 
if you feel overwhelmed, okay, or if you feel yourself coming to that place where you go, what does that do? I mean, if this is true, I mean, if God foreknew me, if that's what foreknow means, and God predestined, and then he called, and that call isn't something I can resist, then what does that do to my will? What does that do with choice? All I can say is, your will is involved. You do choose. You respond in faith. You repent from sin. But you don't exercise free will. There's no such thing as free will. Or, I should say, there is only one being in the universe who has free will. If there is more than one, we have dualism. We have two gods or multiple gods. Only God exercises free will. Our will is always constrained by something. Our limitations, our understanding, what's available to us, resources, whatever it is. Nobody exercises free will. But our will is involved, and the Bible says both. From a street-level perspective, you and I respond with faith to the call of the gospel. And you know what? When we preach the gospel, when we offer the gospel, we don't, we don't preach election. I would never say to anybody, if you want to come to Christ, go home today and try to figure out if you're elect or not. Go try to figure out if you're predestined. Never. Jesus doesn't even do that. He says, whosoever may come, follow me. Whoever would be my disciple must take up his cross and follow me. Jesus appeals to the will. But Jesus also says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Huh. So here you go. Both are true. We don't like the tension. We always want to relieve the tension. God has orchestrated and intentionally put the tension in like a suspension bridge is held together with tension. God is sovereignly at work in your life. God has called you. He's foreknown you. He's predestined you. And that ought to humble you. That ought to cause you to fall on your face and worship A helpful illustration would be to say this, that the narrow path of salvation, the offer of the gospel, is a path in life that has a very, has a very unadorned entrance, and over the entrance is posted, whosoever may come. Whosoever may come. Once you have entered that path, once you have come to Christ and you belong to him, and you start up that narrow path, that narrow winding way. Narrow is the way and hard is the way that leads to life, right? Wide, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And destruction, and easy it is for people to go that way. It's the way the whole world is going. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Take that narrow path, and as you, as you round the bend and you look back at the entrance, over the door says, only the elect. Only those whom God works in their hearts. We sow the seed. We preach the gospel because those who belong to God don't have little E's on their foreheads. We preach the gospel. We sow the seed. We let the Holy Spirit do the work. In any case, however you might want to wrestle with these truths, remember that Paul's purpose here is not to start a debate the last thing on Paul's mind is for someone to start asking the question, 
well, how does my will fit into this? Paul is pulling back the curtain and revealing God's purposes and his sovereign work in calling you so that you and I can live with perfect, unshakable assurance that God's purposes cannot be thwarted. And once you belong to him, once Jesus has you, you stay. He keeps you. His purposes will be fulfilled because he's God. And so, Father, we know that we stand on the brink of a chasm of truth that will keep us studying and talking, but most of all, worshiping for the rest of our lives until you call us to glory. And Lord, I pray that your people, the people of Crossway Fellowship, and any who would hear this message would know that they are secure, would know that this hope of glory is certain and unshakable, it is assured by your promise, and so we belong to you and have never a reason to doubt Never a reason to despair, but even in the face of weakness, of struggling with sin, of facing great hardships, Lord, you are with us, and your sovereign purposes in our life to deliver us, to save us, cannot be changed or thwarted or disrupted. In your name we proclaim these things and ask for your blessings upon us as your people. Amen.